Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have an incredible and fantastic episode for you guys. So sit back and enjoy. I think it's obvious what we're primarily going to talk about today, and that's the state of the GOP primary and really how it's probably going to end tomorrow. Because who would have ever thought Ron DeSantis dropped out yesterday and endorsed Trump? Now, this is a little bit different than what I expected. When I, you know, in weeks past, I've been wondering if DeSantis dropped out after Iowa, he would most, I would, I thought he would, he would be more inclined to endorse Haley, but conditions are very different than what they are now. First off, he finished in second, which did hurt some of the momentum for Nikki Haley. I think if Nikki Haley had finished in second, like at the positions had been reversed with their same polling number, like she had gotten 21% versus uh, DeSantis's 18 or 19%, then I think there would have been a better position for him to endorse. But there's been, ever since the beginning of the year, really even into last December, where the entire establishment has just been gathering around Trump. The new Speaker of the House endorsed him in the fall. Uh, People like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz have been endorsing him. The entire Republican establishment is coming around and finally bending the knee and saying we're backing Trump. And no one is coming around to endorse Nikki Haley except donors. So there's not really this groundswell of opposition within the party emerging against Trump. Instead, they've been going over to Trump. You know, they've been biding their time for months and months, you know, and some of them are like, it's time to move on from Trump. And then when time comes, they all endorse Trump. So most people are seeing the writing on the wall. And Trump is increasing his primary poll advantage. Uh, There are polls now with him nearly 70% support. And even in New Hampshire, which was the closest state to someone else not named Trump beating Trump, Trump is now well into the 50s. He's likely going to beat Nikki Haley by at least 10 points, and that's going to force Nikki Haley to drop out. And DeSantis, you know, on Sunday, he realizes like what it would be idiotic to endorse Nikki Haley because Nikki Haley is likely to drop out in two days. So it's going to be he's going to endorse Trump and save what little of his political capital remains and to, you know, lick his wounds and, and fight another day. And that was a smart move. I I was actually surprised by it, pleasantly surprised by it, because I felt that his wife and his advisors, you know, they were high on copium and really high on resentment towards Trump, that they would have just said, you know what, we're going to support Haley just to spite Trump. And throughout the week, throughout the week, they're acting like they had won Iowa, that second place is the new first place, that... You know, that they're driving the grifters mad and they're going to destroy Trump in primaries. And he had all the influencers just lie and delude themselves into thinking that this is a close race and that DeSantis is going to win. And even up to Trump, or not Trump's announcement, but DeSantis's resignation or suspending his campaign, the shills were insisting that this is fake news and they're going to carry this on to the convention. And these people actually do interact with the campaign because as I've always been talking about, the influencer network that DeSantis has deployed throughout the throughout the campaign has been directed by Christina Pushall through a group chat. 
There is a Christina Pushal group chat that she controls all these conservative influencers and gets them on the same page, make sure that they attack certain tweets, uh, make sure that they get their talking points right, and then they all deploy it. And it was likely that this group chat was telling them like, oh, this is all fake news, like they're taking this to the convention. And there were even influencers who minutes after DeSantis had announced he's dropping out who were saying this is fake news. And they haven't really been taking it well either because they're just like saying that by dropping out DeSantis is the real winner. Uh, they're still attacking Trump and they're demanding that we, you know, bend the knee for them for how important they are. But really, the DeSantis influencers, you know, hurt themselves. They're very irrelevant. You really don't need their support. They don't represent real world people. That's like something to keep in mind. They just represent themselves on Twitter. That's it. They do not represent real world people. Real world people are moving over to Trump. I mean, they look at New Hampshire poll numbers and the majority of those DeSantis voters are going to Trump, not to Haley. So it, you know, it's, it's very likely. It's almost guaranteed that Trump wins by 10 points. Now, there's something that Trump may not win by 10 points because New Hampshire has an open primary and Democrats and independents can go and vote and Nikki Haley's strategy has always been to attract Democrats and independents to come over to vote for her. So that helps her cause. And you could even see that in Iowa, where a majority or plurality of her voters said that they would prefer Biden over Trump in the uh, 2024 race. And there was all these stories about these Democrats, you know, having a day, a day of changing their party affiliation to Republican just to vote for Haley. So polls may not be accounting for all of that support. Now, Trump's going to win. Polls, he's got, in some polls, uh, almost a 20-point advantage. And despite what DeSantoids have been saying for the whole time, uh, polls are pretty accurate. <laughs> you know, they may be five points off as, you know, people were saying, oh, the polls are wrong. Like, DeSantis got four more points than he was supposed to. Polls completely wrong, which... Actually, the most important part of the polls was that it was showing Trump 30 points ahead of the entire field. And guess what? He ended up with 30 points ahead of DeSantis. So the polls are not, the polls might be five points off. They're not going to be 30 or 20 points off. So he is going to win. It could be a closer race. Now, there's a small chance that Haley is within five points. I don't think that, by the way, the campaign is going and the momentum and the news stories. I think a lot of these voters who have problems with Trump are just accepting Trump and are going to vote for him. But there is still a small chance, small chance of that happening. And that's pretty much the only chance that Haley has of staying in. If she loses by, say, four points, maybe her donors will keep funding her and say, OK, take this to South Carolina. But it's most likely not going to happen. She's going to lose by at least 10 and... Donors have already told her, news reports showed this last week, that, hey, if you don't compete in New Hampshire, it's over, call it quits. And the fact that DeSantis has dropped out and endorsed Trump really just shows the whole field rallying behind Trump and this primary is over. So it's just a matter, I mean, the primary is over. It's just a matter of whether Nikki Haley wants to keep it alive for another month to get destroyed in South Carolina. I don't think she's going to do that. I think she's also, um, with a lot of the vice presidential talk, 
with Haley, it's not so much about actually picking Haley. Trump's not going to pick Haley. The more I think about this, the more um, I'm certain of this. Because one, Trump is saying extremely mean things about Haley. You know, he's making fun of her name, uh, that they're all saying is racist. It's really funny. The fact that Trump world is promoting the stuff about her adultery, which is it's something very humiliating. And that's much more than what Trump would do if he's like considering that person as a nominee, as a fellow running mate. And, you know, if he's like calling her, you know, essentially if his team's essentially calling her a whore and and sharing these stories around, like, you know, the news media, that's a sign that they don't really have any respect for her, that they actually do want to crush her. But the point is they want to have this entertained because they want they want Haley out of the field quickly because, you know, Trump just wants to focus on the general election and emphasize that he is the king of the GOP, which he is. And so he wants her out of the field. And two, he wants her to come and kiss the ring and kiss his ass and then have this whole show of that she's going to try to become VP and then him pick somebody else to humiliate her. He did this with Romney when he was going to become president. You know, he met with Romney and considered him for secretary of state. And it was just about making him kiss the ring and humiliating him. And then he didn't pick him in the end. He would do the same with Haley. He's not going to pick Haley. Um, I'm pretty confident of that. Everyone who talks to him recommends that he doesn't even like Haley on a personal level. I think that they're just kind of, you know, saying, oh, we won't roll this out to get her to end her campaign soon. So she doesn't further diminish her political prospects and that she comes kiss the ring and kisses his ass. And then he just humiliates her by rejecting her. I think that's like the whole purpose of this. He's not he has other people way other people to pick. There's other problems with who he might pick, but we'll, um, I don't know if we'll get to that in this podcast because that's going to be a continuing theme for the next few months. So uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll maybe briefly touch on it, but it's like, it's worth going over the DeSantis campaign and the Haley campaign and what people thought would happen in this primary. Now I want to congratulate somebody very important who got this all right, who was at the beginning predicting that DeSantis was not going to be a good presidential contender, who said that DeSantis was not charismatic at all, and who was not going to connect with the base, and that the base has a fanatical loyalty to Trump that nobody can replace. And that person is Scott Emger. Yes, it's me. I was actually totally right about this primary. You know, everybody wants to say, oh, I predicted this. It's like, I've been predicting this since 2022, or really 2021. I was, I was saying... You know, I've been criticizing DeSantis ever since uh, like spring of 2021 when it was like clear that they were trying to boost him as the Trump replacement and I was noticing the problems with him and I was looking at the polls. It's like, look, when people ask who they want as their presidential candidate or who they want for their nominee, 2024, it's over 50% for Trump. And it stayed that way for ever since then for a little bit of a brief drop. After the midterms, you know, for the few months after the midterms, but by April, it was already back to 50%, and it's been the same way ever since. And now it's 70%. So it, they were never going to replace Trump. So why did all these candidates decide to run against Trump? Why did we even have a real a primary in the first place? Why did people spend millions the tens of millions of dollars on this primary. It's actually obscene. There is a good argument that people are showing because the GOP has a massive fundraising problem. 
It's had a massive, this is an overlooked aspect of why they haven't been doing well in elections, is that they are getting killed by Democrats in fundraising. This happened in the midterms, this happened last year in 2023, and it's likely to be a real problem in 2024, especially with, you know, McCarthy sucked. You can argue that Johnson's a better choice. I think maybe with this deal that's coming up with the Lankford deal um, and the Senate, um, and the fact that Johnson's opposing it, you can see him as better because I don't think McCarthy would have been opposing it. We'll see what Johnson does. It's likely he opposes it. I don't know if McCarthy would have opposed it, which I'm more certain that Johnson would have opposed it. So that's an improvement for Johnson. But Johnson, he's a, he's not a he's not a good fundraiser. McCarthy was a very good fundraiser. So all the bad things about McCarthy, he was a good fundraiser, and they need good fundraisers for the these house elections in 2024 and they don't have that they're going to be outspent by democrats when it comes to those races and they're going to have problems with the presidential race as well with funding and senate races now senate races i think i'm pretty confident the gop regardless of what happens in the presidential race they're going to win the senate uh house i'm actually less certain that they win the house than they win the presidency so if trump doesn't get convicted trump is likely going to win but even if Trump wins, I don't think they're going to win the House because there's like very unique problems to the House that I don't know if they're going to overcome. And there's, you know, look, we'll go over some of these things. One, they're imposing a second majority black districts on various states in the South. You know, they all, they have a very thin majority right now. I think it's only about come down to three, two or three seats or something that they have because McCarthy resigned and they got rid of Santos. So I think they only have like a two or three seat majority. Um, and by these black majority districts itself, even if they won all these races, I think it would be Democrats would just by have these new black majority districts have that advantage. It's also going to be tough to keep Santos District, too, and various other things. So there's that problem. Two, the the fundraising issue. The DCC is going to be raising much more than the NRCC when it comes to national races. It may be the NDCC. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the DCC, the DCCC, rather than that. But the Democrat Congressional uh, Committee that's fundraising for all these they're going to be raising more money than the national than the Republicans. Um, that was already the case in 2022, and that's probably going to get worse in 2024. So that's going to be a problem because there's going to be a lot of competitive races where it's like, hey, we need some extra money to help us with ads and, and to organizing, and the Republicans aren't going to have that. And three, they're also having, um, I will admit sometimes there was candidate issues, especially when it comes to House races. This wasn't quite Trump's fault because sometimes a lot of these people weren't even endorsed by Trump. They were just who they picked in the primary. And then when the primary or when the general election happened, a lot of them were picked prior to Roe v. Wade. And then when or that being overturned, then when that happened, this became the major issue. And I think there's going to be similar candidate quality where they maybe don't have the best people in certain districts. You know, they have a more strong MAGA type in a moderate district, which that's going to be very tough for a strong MAGA type to win it. And so they're going to have issues. So they already have a thin majority. They're already losing seats because of, you know, the courts ordering the creation of new black majority districts in the South. And there's been some other uh, 
you know, redrawing of other districts to make them more moderate in other states. So they really have to win every single district that they uh, have outside the South, and that's going to be very tough. So they have issues for the for that race. But the Senate, you know, there's at least three. There's three that they should win in Montana, West Virginia, and Ohio. Those are red states with Democrat senators. It looks like they're going to win all three. They should definitely win in Virginia. And I, I, Montana might be the toughest one of those three. So they should win three. It doesn't look like they're going to lose any seats. And they may pick up uh, one or two more because, you know, there's Arizona. There's Michigan. You know, in Arizona, Kerry Lake's running. They got Michigan. They got Pennsylvania. They've got Wisconsin. They've got Nevada. I think they may have one other, one more competitive uh, Senate race, too. Maybe in New, I think maybe New Hampshire. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think uh, I may be wrong. But that's what they have going on in the uh, Senate. So they're looking good for the Senate. But that, all that aside, I think it's just going to be a tough uh, campaign all around. So that was a little bit of a side discussion. We need to go back to the presidential campaign. We'll talk more about these campaigns in the future. But why did this primary end up like this? Why were people so wrong? You know, why was only a few people like Scott M. Greer right, but all of conservative media was wrong? And I'll bring a Codvalik question into here because somebody asked me about this, uh, particularly in the context of Eric Erickson, because Eric Erickson, who has been wrong about everything, confidently predicted in December that DeSantis was going to win in Iowa. And pretty much, you know, maybe you could say it's forgivable in the summer of 2023. Still wrong, still stupid, but not as wrong as stupid. And maybe not a huge mistake for someone to say in December. Which, Eric Erickson makes his living as a political analyst. People tune in to Eric Erickson to find out about politics. And he has these takes all the damn time. Every conservative is a fucking moron when it comes to actually predicting elections. They don't get shit right, but then they just suck each other off. They say what they want to hear with their little audience, and then they present themselves as geniuses despite being wrong about every fucking thing. It's a club where they don't even have power. They don't even really have influence, but they still make a living off of having this little built-in Con Inc. audience and that there's not a real alternative for them to listen to on talk radio. And with the passing of Rush Limbaugh, talk radio is bottom of the pit in terms of intelligence. Who replaced Rush Limbaugh? Clay and Buck, who are both, well, Buck isn't as stupid as Clay. Clay is like a complete moron who doesn't know anything about politics. This is a guy who's like, oh man, I was like a Clinton liberal and now I'm a conservative. But I'm also not down with Trump. And he has the dumbest political takes ever. His sports takes are just as bad. And so if you're a stupid sports journalist, you're going to be an absolute like IQ of 50 political analyst. And that's what Clay Travis is. So he's an idiot. Eric Erickson is an idiot. Jesse Kelly is also like a sub 100 IQ. And he has a radio show. There is no intelligent people on talk radio anymore. Michael Savage is still pretty good. I know he's like anti-Trump, but he's pretty good. I like Michael Savage. He's always been smart. He's a little bit off, off the wall. He goes off. But he's generally been right about a lot of things and gone into really offensive, edgy territory. You know, he celebrated Jared Taylor 
Peter Brimlow and all these people. He's been really going on about the identity issues for years and years and years, long before a lot of the other people. They don't have original analysis. These are the type of idiots who thought that DeSantis was going to win in a landslide. And then look at what happens. This is this is the result of this campaign. And so Rush Limbaugh, who was way smarter than these guys and had original thoughts and ideas, would have never fallen for this. But, you know, the clay and bucks of talk radio, that's what we have. But these people are stupid and they don't they never suffer any consequences for being wrong. Every never Trumper, with a few exceptions, who was predicting a confidently that Trump would not win a single primary, that Rubio would sweep the primary. They saw their career continuing to go forward. They didn't suffer any consequences. They're continuing to be promoted and other things. None of these people are ever, you know, even if they wrote all these show pieces for like how Rubio is going to win, nobody ever holds them account. You're only held accountable if you're racist. <laughs> that is it. That's the only way you're held accountable in conservative media. Being wrong in the way in a way that your audience wants you to be wrong, like claiming that Trump's over, uh, which a lot of their audience does want. I don't think that's mainly true for talk radio, but for a lot of the print media, I think that's true. Uh, being in that case wrong where they want you to be wrong, you are rewarded. Being right when your audience doesn't want to hear, that's actually a bigger problem. If you tell people that something's going to happen and it's not what they want to hear at that time, then you're more likely to be punished and held accountable for that than if you are completely wrong, but it's what the audience wants to hear. It's just about it's just about pleasing that little narrow uh, circle jerk that is conservative ink. And so these this is why all these people carry on their careers uh, despite, you know, you know, if you look at Eric Erickson's past, he was wrong about 2012, uh, completely wrong about 2016 on multiple levels. <laughs> you know, he's like Trump's he was like confident Trump wouldn't make it. Iowa wouldn't win a single primary. Uh, he was going to get destroyed by Hillary. Wrong. Confident that Hillary Trump was going to get blown out in 2020. Wrong. You know, all these people predicting that Roe v. Wade getting overturned would actually be a huge win for Republicans. All wrong. I mean, these people, these people generally believe that millennials, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that millennials and Gen, Z, and Gen Zers or Zoomers are the pro-life generation. And then all polls show the complete opposite. They're able just to talk among themselves and they don't even give you accurate analysis. But the funny thing is, while Eric Erickson is being completely wrong about Iowa, he's threatening to, or he's talking about how advertisers need to drop Charlie Kirk for speaking truth about Martin Luther King. And that shows you what happens in conservative media. You don't get punished for being a fucking idiot. You get punished for saying uh, uncomfortable truths that are controversial and that are racist or are dangerous or hateful. You don't get punished for being wrong. It actually pays better to be wrong than it does to uh, be right and controversial. So I'll bring up this uh, K-Max question uh, who was asked this. I'll get to the other Conway <laughs> questions later. But as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Conway option at highly respected Substack, which is now just highly-respected.com. No substack in it, and make sure it's highly-respected.com because if you don't have the dash, you're going to be taken to an Urban Streetwear site, which uh, I don't think that would uh, fit the Greerhead pledge. But while you're, and if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. 
So KMAX asks, Trump's resounding win in Iowa merely proves Connick gets all predictions wrong and yet still keeps working and making predictions. Bill Crystal, Eric Erickson, and others predicted Trump would win zero states in 2016 and DeSantis would win Iowa by tons and tons of votes in 2024. Uh, Crystal never did predict that, but Crystal's a different situation. I have to, I'll go into those type of never Trumpers in a moment. Do they just make predictions based on what they want to happen? Yes. <laughs> uh, what does Connick just con consistently get wrong about Trump that they predict everything wrong about him? Well, it's that their narrow little sphere of social milieu wants to believe this. And they know that there's no consequences for just being wrong and stupid. So they just continue to say this and they know that there are, there are more consequences for going against their little social scene. Uh, it's more than a social scene. It's a the conservative ink club. And so they know that they're protected. They know that they can never get fired by saying Trump's going to lose in a landslide. That all racists need to be purged. Uh, I hate Charlie Kirk. Anyone who uh, doesn't want more immigration shouldn't be welcome in conservatism. They are not punished by that. But if you are saying, and they're not, you know, attacked. But if you're saying Trump's going to win, if you were saying in December of 2022 that Trump's going to win this primary easily, Everyone would have attacked you. Everyone called you stupid. You know, you would have had tons of articles written about you about how idiotic you are. And you're going to be proven wrong on Twitter and Nash Review and all these places. And that comes at a cost. And then if you're proven right, no one comes and says, oh, you're right. Oh, I was wrong. No. They then just, as what we're seeing now with these DeSantoids, these influencers, they're trying to claim that they're the real victors and that Trumpists need to bend the knee because there's no consequences for being wrong or stupid within conservatism. So all their predictions is not predict it it does not base itself on actual political analysis. It's based on what they want to hear. And they have this like, you know, puffed up sense of like I'm smart and I'm expert. I know politics unlike you. There is an article from Ben Dominich that was saying like all these so-called experts shouldn't be even allowed to push carts at a grocery store. I'm a real political expert. And the DeSantis campaign was great. Here's 10 worst campaigns for those who are idiots. And so they puff themselves up like, how dare you insult me? I'm a conservative apparatchik who does jack shit, but I'm something important. How dare you insult me or my intelligence? And so Ben Dominich's fat ass gets up here and talks about how the 10 worst campaigns than DeSantis. And the political analysis, you know, he looked on Wikipedia for some for some races, but it's actually really stupid because, you know, except for Jeb and a few others, you know, some were, uh, you know, Rick Perry 2012 was really bad. Jeb Bush 2016 was really bad. A lot of these other races, they were destroyed by circumstances. Like the other 2016 races where he points out like Scott Walker, it's like, they didn't predict Trump. And even with Jeb Bush, he didn't predict Trump. Like nobody predicted Trump. Everyone except for Ted Cruz ran a terrible, and Trump ran a terrible campaign in 2016. Maybe you could argue Rubio's campaign was okay, because, but it wasn't really that good. You know, he defeated, he got more votes than Jeb Bush. But with DeSantis, he blew over $100 million, you know, nearly $200 million on a race to finish 30 points behind Trump. $200 million. That's $200 million that could be going to the Republican campaigns in 2024 that they desperately need. And now that's us all gone away. It was pissed away for what? To ruin DeSantis's political reputation. And no one has a positive view of how DeSantis ran campaign. All the decisions were stupid. You know, launching on Twitter, on Twitter spaces. You know, not having a message. Waiting too long to, to run. No, no matter what he did, he was going to lose. 
but he lost in a way where he you know, significantly decreased his political capital and his political support among the right. Completely washed away by his campaign. So it was a significantly terrible campaign, but all these people are like, oh, these guys never know anything. They're not geniuses like us in Conservative Inc., where we've been wrong about every fucking thing we've ever predicted, but somehow we're still treated as geniuses because, you know, we say the wrong things that people want to hear. And that's all it really takes. I mean, so you should never, whenever you hear Conservative Inc. commentators predict something, you can guarantee it's going to be wrong. It's like, all this theory theorizing that Michelle Obama's going to get in the race. Michelle Obama's not going to get in the race. They've been predicting this since 2016. They've been wrong because sometimes, and it's uh, both Connick and more of the uh, conservative entertainment complex, the more people who are populist style, I guess, who will always entertain this because it's an entertaining idea. It's more exciting than seeing that, uh, you know, Biden is going to be the nominee. And she's not going to run for office. And none of them ever like give you sober analysis of why she's not going to run. It's just going to be clearly Biden. That's it. Um, and But it, they don't like, in some ways, it's not very exciting to say this. It's more boring to just state the obvious. But that's what it is. But these guys are just trying to sell you something. And they're not even like entertaining or talented. Like, Erickson's an idiot. So, yeah, no. All, all conservative predictions and analysis is just wish casting about what they perceive is going to happen. And also, some of the be uh, another thing about Erickson. Erickson really is the example of conning stupidity and mediocrity being rewarded because he's, you know, he's fat, ugly, he's stupid. There's nothing particularly talented about him. He, he was in the mid-2010s talking about how the GOP needs to embrace amnesty and immigration reform and more immigrants to further its party and he was like presenting himself as now a nice conservative like he's no longer saying mean things about liberals he's now wanting amnesty and guess what he was completely wrong about that too that's another thing all these commentators like gop needs amnesty to survive um they instead elect a guy who calls them rapists and drug dealers and they win elections so um, completely wrong analysis there uh, but that's like a, but going back to the primary this is the that is the root of the problem for why all these people ran. As there's this deep wish ever since Trump came down the escalator to get rid of Trump from the GOP and from the American right. You know, all, all, you know, nine years ago now. It's coming up on nine years. Time flies by when you're being key. And when he came down the escalator, he said his, uh, gave his very keyed speech about immigrants. Republicans and the GOP wanted him gone. And they have uh, struggled for nine years to get rid of them. But they've tr thought that many times that they would be, this would be the time. You know, in 2016, when he lost, when he didn't come in first place in Iowa, they're like, he's done. He's over. He's never going to win a primary. Then he won primaries. Then they're like, uh, Rubio's going to come and beat him. Rubio lost. Then they're like, uh, Cruz uh, is going to beat him. He lost. Then they're like, oh, at the RNC, they're going to get rid of him. He's easily won at the RNC. Then, you know, pussy, uh, grab him by the pussy and all those comments came out. He's going to be done. He's going to be killed in the general election. He wins the general election. Then they're like, oh, all his problems in the, in the current election. He's not going to run again. He, he definitely ran again. Uh, and then they thought there was going to be a serious primary challenger to defeat him. He didn't get a serious primary challenger. Uh, then they saw, thought that, you know, he would lose. He'd get blown out so much by in 2020 that Republicans would give up on him. They didn't give up on him. They just rallied behind him. Then they thought January 6th would kill him. Didn't. 
He kept going. He kept getting stronger and more popular among Republicans. Then they thought the midterms would be the end of Trump, which this is probably the first time that in ever since becoming president, maybe besides January 6th, where there was a brief, a slight decline in his popularity among Republicans. I don't actually, I don't know if I'd have to, I've been trying to look at the polls, but not really. Really, I would say after midterms is the first time that his support for being the next president declined among Republicans. And so they all thought, oh, it's finally happening. We finally beat Trump. We see him. We drew blood. We're going to have our guy. We're going to have DeSantis run against him. And he's going to crush him in the primary. And you better believe this because we're not going to let you. We're going to write mean things about you in our publications and our in our talk shows and podcasts if you don't believe this. And we're going to ratio you on Twitter. And so all the bright geniuses of conservative finally thought that, they, that Trump was over. And they got really hyped up. And there was all these candidates that prior to the midterms were not considering running. Nikki Haley had actually told Trump that she was not going to run. But after midterms, everyone's like, time for me to jump in. Uh, I think Tim Scott was also another person who would have never jumped in if it wasn't for the midterms. I think Pence was definitely going to run no matter what. And I think DeSantis, DeSantis was convinced by the midterms because, you know, he won in a decisive election a one by almost 20 points or i think actually 20 points in florida you know he he's seen as the next thing better than trump and he's high on his supply and he's going and he thought he could really beat trump because guess what the entire conservative media thought this too and he was a creation of conservative media they turned him into this uh sunshine state caudillo who was like incredibly charismatic and just destroyed libs by looking at him when in fact it wasn't very true, and he was staging a lot of uh, creative PR stunts to boost his own profile. But he wasn't quite what he made himself out to be. And then, you know, a few people noticed who the real DeSantis was, that he was awkward, he was not going to be good with retail politics, that he was not charismatic at all. Some people like who are talking to you right now. And then he emerged, and then he was obviously not who he claimed to be and his creation conservative media and he ended his campaign by attacking conservative media which he was only a thing because conservative media pedestaled pedestaled him into something he's not and they made this created this image of him that he didn't fit at all and once voters got to know him it was over but you know they wanted a wish cast and then so they kept wish casting they're like well you know he's declining in polls trump's gaining back but once voters get to know desantis and hear his story he's gonna win him over the opposite happened and then they kept predicting, oh, Trump pissed off the pro-lifers. This is over. This is actually an un, un, underlooked aspect is that the pro-lifers have been completely wrong ever since this. You know, they're like, this is the core issue of, of America. This is what really motivates voters. This is incredibly popular. And I said this, I said this point in like last fall, if like, if you say that the pro-life issue is what really motivates Americans and is incredibly popular, then here's the things that are going to happen. Ohio's going to reject its constitutional amendment to keep abortion legal, and Trump's going to get defeated in the primaries because the pro-life movement was all insistent that he lost the primaries when he sounded a little bit too moderate on abortion. Uh, guess what? Complete opposites happened. They lost by nearly 60% in the Ohio referendum, and Trump Want re easily wrapped up this primary and pro-lifers are no longer around to say, uh, oh, you know, maybe we were wrong about what we said about Trump. And so 
that's uh, that's something that they it, it's just wrong analysis. Everyone's just wish casting and. And as long as you can get retweets and engagement and support within your own little circle, it doesn't matter. You don't need to face reality. And so they kept wish casting. You know, then they the debates were going to bump them up. They didn't. And then uh, they didn't even have anything to have their own wish casting. There was no event to think that the DeSantis was going to finally have a big push. But they're just like, wait and see, wait and see. Um, he's going to get um, a. Uh, Super PAC boot bump. I don't know. They didn't even have anything for the last two or three months to actually claim that DeSantis was going to have a bump for. And then, but they wanted it to happen. And then when it didn't happen, none of them are accepting blame because they don't need to. They're going to carry on all these same jokers and clowns that have been wrong for, who have been well established, but established before, you know, 2023 are still going to be around. Some people are not going to be around very much, like uh, our good friend Pedro uh, Gonzalez. Um, He's already sliding into irrelevancy and nobody really wants him because they already see that he made extreme comments and he's alienated a lot of people. Uh, so he's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be much of a thing. You're not going to have to pay attention to him for the rest of 2024. So then there's several other people too, but people like Erickson, Dave Rubin, the bigger influencers who are really into DeSantis, you know, they don't, they don't have to accept the consequences for being wrong again. So that's just the nature of conservatism. And so that wish casting makes people, made all these people run. And then they wasted tens of millions of dollars on this. Didn't get the results. And now we just have Trump. But they are at least not trying to drag this on at the convention like they did in 2016. And they're accepting defeat, you know, before February. So that's good for Trump. And Trump, as long as he, you know, doesn't get convicted this year, I think he's going to win the election. And even if he does convict, get convicted, he still might win. I don't really know. I've always said this. I, I, it's really uh, a blank space of what happens. We really don't know how voters are going to react. We do have polling saying that there's more voters who are would be less inclined to vote for Trump if this happens. But we'll see when it happens. I mean, the guess is it would probably reduce his chances of winning, but maybe it might not harm his polling at all. I mean, he is running against a senile old man who can't give a public uh, speech. So we will see about that. But the primary is over. Uh, with DeSantis' political future, you know, he is term limited. Well, he, can, he can't he can run t- for two consecutive term, more than two consecutive terms. And he's going to, in you know, 2026 or beginning of 2027, his term is over. And what will he do next? I mean, I don't think... He might try to run again in 2028, but his his reputation is permanently ruined. His capital among Republicans is permanently ruined by this campaign. He would have been much better to have said, I'm not going to run. I'm going to support Trump. And he would have been much better positioned, much better positioned if he had chosen not to run and he had backed Trump. Because, you know, Trump was is probably going to let whoever he wants to run in 2028 and have this competitive primary. But DeSantis, I don't know if DeSantis would have ever won, no matter what. He had serious problems that were exposed throughout this campaign of just him as a person and him as a campaigner. And he was at the height of his popularity. His height of his popularity might be gone by then. There might be a new person who's like the new DeSantis by then, whether it's a senator or a governor. And that person might be more charismatic and better at retail politics. But we don't know. His chances would have been much better without Trump in the race. And with Trump in the race, 
no matter what people did, no matter who they put forward, no matter if they had all rallied behind one candidate to go against Trump, the same results would have happened. Trump would have easily won the primary. And they can't get rid of Trump. And so it was a bad bet on the part of DeSantis. And it's going to be cost him for till 2028. And that's why it's a historically bad campaign. I mean, people want to say like, oh, Scott Walker or Bobby Jindal or somebody, some random person from 2016 is worse. But he permanently ruined his clout within Republican politics. He ensured this campaign ensured he this campaign was so bad it ensured that he likely will not be a contender in 2028. I, I guarantee you he won't be a contender in 2028 because Trump's going to remember that he ran in 2024. And there's going to be other people that he can entertain or like more. And I think all his problems are going to still be there with 2028, but he's not going to come off this high of being America's governor. So to conclude this topic, I want to go over these criticisms of Trump <coughs> a little bit. Because there's still these uh, DeSantis dead-enders who are coming in and be like, Oh, the first step back, platinum plan, blah. He supported amnesty. The most, the most egregious is saying he supported amnesty. What he supported was he supported a deal... I was going to have a lot of immigration restrictions, such as, you know, mandatory E-Verify. I'm not quite sure if his one did, but other bills at this time were demanding E-Verify. They were going to cut um, the diversity visa lottery. They're going to restrict a lot of the stuff about family reunification policies that dealt with immigration. They're going to build the wall. There's going to be a lot of good, great stuff in there. Now, the problem was, is they were going to offer... DACA. They were going to formalize and legalize DACA, which had been given to illegal aliens who came to the U.S. as minors. And that's they've already had legal status. So that was thanks to Obama. Now, the debate within Republican circles is how many of them are going to give it. Now, there was a strong conservative plan that I'm 100% certain, and I'm pretty certain that Ron DeSantis supported, that you could claim as amnesty because it would have given legal status to, I think it's around 600,000 illegal aliens who've been covered by DACA. The Dreamers who have been covered by DACA. The Trump plan would have given more than the 600,000. So that was the issue o- over that. Now, both all these plans were rejected by Democrats for not being uh, moderate enough towards these illegals. But all plans that were pa- that were supported by Republicans could have counted as amnesty, but at the time, they came with a lot of great stuff that would have limited immigration, both legal and illegal immigration. Now, I think, and that, trying to do a legislative solution to immigration was not the way to go, it turned out. And Trump, in his last two years, just instead empowered these executive agencies to limit immigration on their own and to pass tough rules, such as Remain to Mexico and increasing the standards for how illegal immigrants could come into this our immigrants could come into this country and many other things and dramatically reducing our refugee intake and that worked to cut immigration and to make our nation inho- inhospitable to illegal immigrants so the plan wasn't the best thing he should have done but at the end of the day he did a lot of other good things while he's president and then they want to talk about the First Step Act. Once again, DeSantis signed his own version of the First Step Act in Florida and had indicated he was okay with the First Step Act as it existed in the national, uh, at the national stage. And then the Platinum Plan. The Platinum Plan was really bad, but it was never enacted. It was a poor pl- ploy to get more black voters. It, it was bad. But guess what? It was not likely to be enacted. So it didn't 
And many of these things already occurred, unfortunately, with making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Unfortunately, that already happened well independent of Trump. And right now, Trump is ensuring that the House, the Congress doesn't make a terrible deal on immigration with this uh, James Lankford deal that's coming out of the Senate that's likely going to increase immigration and not deal with the problem of illegal immigration. But the fact that Trump is complaining about it and criticizing it ensures that the House will reject it. So he is doing his part. You know, and Trump's not perfect. And Trump's done a lot of bad things, but most of the bad things that he did, they are uh, applied to the rest of the party, <laughs> unfortunately. But he's pushing the party in a much better direction. He has that charisma and ability to push things outside the box and to make and shake up the status quo in a way that DeSantis and other Republicans can't. And at the end of the day, DeSantis is just a standard politician. You know, he doesn't have like, these deep keyed instincts like Trump does, and he doesn't have the charisma like Trump does. And Trump is willing to think and accept ideas that are radical and are dramatic and can change things for this country. And he's frankly our leader. And that's it. And when in politics, you're not going to get the perfect candidate. You're never going to get the perfect candidate. And he's the best we've got. And currently, your object, if you think that Trump is beyond the pale, your alternatives are RFK Jr., who is far worse than all these issues and has no chance of ever becoming president. Or, you know, you could maybe, uh, I guess, vote for National Justice Party, even though that's now defunct. I guess some of these uh, tiny third parties, you know, I guess you can vote for them and complain about Trump all the time, but they don't even exist anymore. And so if you want to actually operate in politics, you have to accept politics what it is. And Trump is the best we've got. And that's that's the fact of the matter. And some people are like, you've got to criticize him. You've got to whine about him all day. It's like I criticized it, this stuff when it mattered, when it was happening, when a lot of these guys were saying this is awesome and sucking off Trump and suck and trying to appeal to his administration like Dave Reboy and others who are trying to, you know, make money off it by lobbying for foreign governments to the to the Trump administration. You know, these guys were all there, you know, celebrating the stuff. And now when it's safe to do so, they've been criticizing it. But I was criticizing it when it was happening, when it was mattering. And the fact is you can criticize Trump and you can disagree with him. You don't have to believe that everything he does is the greatest thing in the world. We're not like DeSantis shills, but at the end of the day, we accept him as leader and as who we support. And that's how we're going to operate in 2024. And it'll be a great thing if he gets a second term. So that is my concluding remarks on that subject. So on a related topic, last week, Babylon B made a... It's like, Babylon B is just not funny, in my opinion. Sometimes they have one thing that's like, oh, that's funny. But it's a little usually too obvious and hits you over the head. They did one where it's like Vivek is being announced to serve as head of the White House 7-Eleven or something of that sort. It's a harmless joke. It was whatever. It wasn't one of the worst jokes. But people were generally offended by it and being like, how dare you? This is a racist joke. Now, some of it people were explaining, well, Babylon B has been pro-DeSantis and this is Trump supporter and this is clearly aimed at a Trump supporter. Some, that may have been some of the angle. I feel like that argument was similar to Calendar Gate from a few weeks ago, if you guys remember that, where there, there was this tacky calendar put out by ultra-right beer that had conservative female influencers, and everyone was upset about it because they're like, this is degenerate, this isn't true, and blah, blah, blah. 
It's more the fact that like all these women are like, how dare men ogle at this stuff? They really didn't like their the idea of their husbands ever finding uh, women attractive, I guess, or something. And there was like deep anger from women over this. A lot of them were upset that they weren't included. Some were just upset that they really hate male sexuality and they want it restricted. That's like a lot of, unfortunately, some conservative women. But then people were like, well, there's others who are trying to argue. It's like, well, this isn't just a problem over, uh, you know, uh, f conservative fem cell hatred for male sexuality. This is just we didn't like the aesthetics and stuff. And it's like, that might be your reasons, but that's not the reasons driving other people. And it's the same with this, is that they see Vivek is a conservative and they don't like these racial jokes about him. They're, they're, they're uncomfortable with about it. And I mostly like Vivek, so I'm not that um, much problematic about it. But it is like displays a type of racial sensitivity among right that's seeping in from general society into even the right. And 20 years ago, everyone made 7-Eleven jokes. I mean, look at Simpsons. Simpsons had a guy running, you know, a 7-Eleven type store in the show. And then eventually they're like, this is racist. And we have a, a non-Indian voicing this character, Apu. And so we had to, they had to get rid of that character over time. But this guy was in the show ever since the beginning and was only in the last, I think they took him out in the last five years or so. Um, and that, but that just shows changing social mores over this issue and it's the same with but a lot of that is developing within conservatives as well on the right and it goes back to this point i've been making a lot i don't know if i made this in the regular podcast but i've definitely made it in iq supplements about the what's happening between there's a difference between personal identitarianism or personal race racialism versus ideological identitarianism or race realism and a lot of people throughout America have had, American history had very deep personal uh, racial <laughs> views as, you know, all these people were like, oh, men are created equal and stuff. But if then a black family moved in their neighborhood, they would be very upset about it. Now today, you know, where a lot of, there's a lot more people, at least online or at least in the right, challenging a lot of the fundamental assumptions of American society in the American mainstream. But at the same time, they're much more willing to support non-white candidates they're okay with uh, not some of these non-white candidates marrying you know having mixed race marriages this goes along with tim scott marrying a white woman which are in, uh, being engaged to a white woman which some people are like oh it's a beard whatever i don't know the story but it's the more important thing is it's a black republican representing a deep southern state south carolina publicly announcing he's get, he's engaged to a white woman 20 years ago, that would have not been acceptable within within Republican politics. Even 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been acceptable. I think a large reason that Tim Scott never married was the fact that he wanted a political career in Republican politics in South Carolina, and he realized he probably preferred white women, and he realized that marrying a white woman was a political liability for him. And that's probably even true 10 years ago. But it's not true anymore 10 years now because pretty much all these Republicans, these black Republicans that they love, like Byron Donalds, uh, John James, all are married to white women and conservatives don't seem to care. And they would have cared, but they would have cared 20 or 30 years ago. And so it's just a difference of views is that Republicans are more likely to agree with great replacement and a lot of other things that are very right wing. But at the same time, they don't really have the type of personal racial animus that animated people in the 60s and 70s 
Some of that was, you know, not very good. It's like, why would you get that upset about a black guy ordering a milkshake from, you know, your restaurant? And then he leaves. And generally, and they were able to sell this stuff on how really on undermine segregation because they would have these well-dressed, you know, polite, respect respectable black guys go into this restaurant and just ask for, you know, a milkshake. And then they get beaten up. And a lot of people were like, well, that's outrageous. You know, they're not uh, causing a scene. They're not being magical or anything. And so it was able to topple this and undermine it. And so a lot of people find that stuff very irrational. Like if somebody was trying to bring back separate water fountains, they're like, that's what, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's some of the things. But when it came to the other consequences of a company being forced to hire uh, blacks just because they're black and other things, that's where people really get upset by. But that all the things that we created because of those images coming from them trying to desegregate these restaurants in the South, that's what led to the Civil Rights Act that now imposes these businesses, not just that they have to serve people, no matter, you know, they're following the rules or whatever. It, they now have to have racial quotas set aside for their company and they have to have diversity and they have to strive to be more racially sensitive. But so it does say something about conservatives that, you know, we're more willing to say that immigrants are ruining our country and that. You know, great replacement is real. And this is even comes for Vivek, but they get upset about 7-Eleven jokes. Now, if it was maybe another Indian politician, that's the real test of it. If they got upset, maybe it was a less um, loved figure among the right that got made fun of. And that might have just been it is that it was like they particularly like Vivek and he gets an exception rather than it's just like we don't like Indian jokes itself. But I think there is more of a... Um, a discomfort with hearing these jokes because we've been trained by society to be more racially sensitive. And we know that like, we laugh at this, that's like, well, people are going to look down on me. I'm going to lose my job and stuff. And so it's trained behavior that in a lot of ways that certain jokes that we would have laughed our asses off a few years ago, you know, certainly in the two thousands and nineties. Now we may be like, Oh, well, that's not, that's a little rude. And so that's just a interesting development we're seeing in American society as a whole. So I have one more topic I have to discuss. I don't think anyone asked me about this, but I really want to get to this. Uh, there was a viral clip of uh, Alien Ant Farm's uh, Lone Hit, uh, which was a cover of Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal. For some reason, it went viral on Twitter. It always kind of goes, people always like to tweet out the clip of it, and uh, everyone always, it always gets a huge audience on Twitter. And uh, new metal has definitely, unfortunately, has come back. Zoomers love new metal, and for a lot of reasons, a lot of the things that Zoomers are this is a part of their culture was definitely a, seen as a predecessor in new metal. The type of clothing they wore, the type of nihilistic angst in it, you know, the mixture of rap and rock with some funk elements and definitely the type of styles they had because some of it was like you know some of these weird zoomer styles you see that was like mixing wigger and goth and some of these hispanic styles you see in in southern california especially in the alien ant farm because all of them have their their they have two of the guys have button-up shirts and they're buttoned to the top button which is like what a lot of hispanics like to wear even though they're all white guys they're um well, I think one guy might be Hispanic in the band. I don't know. It's kind of they're racially ambiguous, too. That's another thing that a lot of these new metal bands had. They were very multiracial. They also, a lot of them had female um, 
members too that was different from past metal bands and so it was like very some for some reason you know even though this music millennials were embarrassed by the music for 20 years and then zoomers discovered it and now they love it and so they love corn and slipknot which is very unfortunate so this song went viral but there is a funny comment from um <laughs> Sargon of Akkad, Carl Benjamin Way said, This is what the world looked like before mass immigration. Widespread racial and gendered guilt activism, and before bankers had totally screwed the economy for their own gain. People were just allowed to be themselves, and they did fun, wholesome things for their own sake. Um, it is like funny that now the return is, you know, people have been doing the 90s and stuff, and there is these weird. Uh, I think this is a year or two years ago where Vocal Distance and some other people, there was these weird cartoons of these kids playing a bunch of video games and playing Pokemon cards in the 90s. And they're like, this is what, this is a spiritual return. This is what we so desire. We want to bring this back. And I was like, I I don't know about that. But now we have return to new metal, (laughs) which I don't, which even there's like a ton of diversity in in the music video itself. And there was tons of diversity in the bands and the music. Uh, and their music videos when they were out this it was like loved by hispanics and a lot of other stuff it was much more of a attempt to make heavy metal more commercially accessible and more multiracial and kind of have this cosmopolitan blend of styles and and genres into one genre that wasn't actually very good so i don't know what carl benjamin was ha- uh, was talking about with his uh, tweet because uh these bands, a lot of these bands are made up of immigrants, whether Hispanic or Armenians. There's a ton of bands like System of Down that were all Armenians. So Matt, it was actually a product of mass immigration and, and multiracial America. I guess there just wasn't racial conflict in there or, you know, white privilege talking. But it was like showing a vision of the future of an America where Anglo-Saxon norms are no longer at the forefront and we're replacing it with a more uh, downscale, commercialized, consumerist multiracialism. And that's what New Metal represented. So I don't really have too much nostalgia for it. I liked this song when it came out, but I was like 10 years old. And so uh, I didn't have well-developed mental taste at the time, so I was 10 years old. Uh, But I remember it very clearly when it came out and was a huge hit. Uh, so it's funny that it now returns. It, you know, even in our day when I was growing up in the 2000s, you know, people like classic rock or dad rock, but now new metal is dad rock. And uh, Zoomers really take to it, I think, more than millennials were taking to classic rock because millennials understood classic rock was not their generation's music. Well, I feel like Zoomers feel like new metal is their generation's music, but it was made 20 years, 20, 25 years before their time. So. Uh, that's not a good thing. That's not a mark for Gen Z. <laughs> but anyway, now on to the convoluted questions are the rest of them. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics. If you sign up for the convoluted option at highly respected Substack, and that's highly-respected.com, and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements if you haven't already. So we'll finish off with K-Max other questions. K-Max asks, uh, birth rate question. It has come up that even Hungary's family plan only increased TFR from 1.3 to 1.5. America overturned abortion, yet this view is the white birth rate will not increase much from this. Is it hopeless at this point? And immigration re- it, restriction is really issued. Japan and South Korea have low birth rates, yet do not take the immigration we do. Sure, our goal just to be like Japan and ignore the birth rate issue. 
Birth rates can only be increased on the margins. It seems. Well, it's not to ignore the birth rate issue. It's just to understand that we're probably not going to be able to support the type of population we have at this rate. And we need to focus on having a smaller population society so we can have lower immigration. Because if we keep insisting on having the high as high of a population we have now or even a higher population, we're going to have to they're going to create the grounds to have a ton of immigration. So we need to work more on automation so we there's less of a need for immigration and then work on birth rates on its own. We should still do efforts to increase the birth rate, but it's extremely tough to go to above replacement level. You can get it. I think you can increase it to, you know, keep it at like 1.7, 1.8 where it's not a disaster. You really just need to prevent your birth rate from falling to the rates like these East Asian countries that are all heading to below one. And that is a nightmare to have for your society. I think in Korea, it's like some places is like heading to 0.6. So it's like nobody's having kids in these societies. And it is really, really bad for that to happen. So I don't think anyone else needs to know. But yeah, that's the real question. I think you do you kind of work on you need to offer the type of benefits, but you need to understand it's not going to it's not going to hit replacement level. So you just need to work on building a society that requires not as many people as we do now because we're not going to have as um, unless you want millions of immigrants and we need to work more on automation and AI to ensure that we don't need as many people as we do for these future projections. And so now we have a quick sports reference, Scott. The Super Bowl this year with 110 million Americans viewing will be playing the Black National Anthem this year. At this point, do most normal Americans, white Americans still not see what is taking place or is this black thing is going a little too far or is, will this wake them up, some of them up? They've been playing it since at least 2021. Um, I don't know why there's like a dispute over it now. I mean, they've been playing it for a while. For three years. I mean, they've been, as I've pointed out when I originally had the boycott the NFL and then gave up, you know, they have end racism in the end zone. They play the Black National Anthem at all their marquee games. They play them at the first game of the season, the inaugural game that they have every year. And I think a few of the playoff games, I'm pretty sure they're going to play the Black National Anthem at the championship games. Um, so they've been doing it for years. I think just Americans just like, this is weird, but whatever. I just want to wait the, watch the football game. So no, it's not going to wake them up. Uh, I definitely, they definitely don't really respond well to it. Because you can, I remember watching the Black National Anthem at the, at the first game of the season. It was a Chiefs game. I think it was Chiefs-Bucks. And the crowd was definitely kind of weird. They didn't really know what to do. They were just like staring around. They're like... Mm. So it's not like that they're really joyous about this and really excited about it, but they're just like, um, I guess this is the new normal, and I guess we just kind of have to sit there awkwardly and accept it. So that is my answer to that question. And we've got a lot of questions. We always have a lot of questions. Okay, we'll go to Dollar Bill next. Dollar Bill, what would the Democrat version of the insane clown party look like? I'm picturing commentators saying white Trump supporters are demonically possessed and are being influenced by mind control rays, beamed by UFOs, and ensuring their audience with 100% sincerity that white people were created thousands of years ago on the island of Patmos when the mad scientist Yakub banged two pieces of steel together. Well, I mean, that would just be the nation of Islam. They, the more non-white elements, I guess, have it, I think... 
If you're into conspiracy theories now, with the exception of like CIA conspiracy theories that like Chapo people are into, you are on the right. Like conspiracy theories are now right coded, which it wasn't the case 20 years ago. Uh, a lot of 9-11 truthers were far left people. You know, one example actually bringing up the NFL is like Pete Carroll was a 9 is a 9-11 truther and he was always seen as a lefty liberal coach. But over time, now that a lot of his views, you know, he was critical of the vaccine and some of the stuff around COVID, that he was then seen as a uh, now right-coded, as a dangerous extremist, because all those views now, if you believe that stuff, 9-11 inside job, I think there's still leftists who believe that. I, I Definitely a lot of Chapo type people will blame the CIA for that. But for the most part, conspiracy theories are now right-coded. So an insane clown party, I mean, it's, their voters are insane clown party. I mean, they get the type of voters they have, but they don't really dominate the political consumer market for liberal content. It is primarily whites who are consuming that content, but they're very reliant on non-whites for their votes. And But those are generally downscale non-white communities that, you know, they're doing their own thing and then... You know, the ballot harvester comes and they vote Democrat. Um, they, they do have ridiculous elements. I did argue this with uh, Hanania when he wrote that conservatism is a ghetto culture is that, you know, going back to the Trump years, you know, the resistance movement was very insane clown party. You know, they believed that Putin was calling up Trump and ordering him to do everything. They believed every Trump Russian conspiracy theory. They would see that like some Republicans would you know, be opposed to Obamacare. And they're like, I think Putin is trying to do this. And they would think that the grand marshal of the Supreme Court is about to arrest and execute Steve Bannon. And so that was more the insane clown party for the left. The insane clown party of the left was the resistance tards and how they operated. That was more their thing than it was for Republicans. Republicans uh, that's there's still that is around and it could come back with the um, if Trump gets a second term because they were sharing the most ridiculous conspiracy. But all it was is like Russia's control, like this red light isn't turning is was this was Putin ordering this. And so it's more just that like some evil force that they really don't like in this case, Putin and Russia control everything and we need to be worried about like attacks. And so they blamed every story on Russia hackers. You know, they blamed Hunter Biden's laptop on Russia hackers or just any story that they didn't like, they would have blamed. You know, I think if um, that stuff was still around, they would have maybe blamed Russian hackers for Claudine Gay's plagiarism stuff. And they always constantly refer to that. So that I would say that's what the um, resistance uh, the resistance is the Democrat version of the insane clown party, and it could come back in the second term. And it'd be just centered on like Putin control and all that type of conspiracy theories and all of that such. I don't think that there's as powerful or I think one thing of the consequence of the Ukraine war is that Putin is not as seen as all powerful as he was in a lot of liberal imaginations. They are really even running with the Putin and Russia will be in charge when Trump comes to power as much. You know, the Russia angle with Trump isn't as strong among liberals. I mean, it could come back, but that is the equivalent to the insane clown party. So going through here, we have 
Uh, long question from Appalachian or Appalachian. Or no, he has um, he has a different question. He added to. Uh, <laughs> uh, here we go. Let's. Uh, he he sent two questions, and he said, "All right, here, I'll just ask the third one because he had to re he had to redact it." Concerning your view on the military, I agree. This is from last week when I was talking about whites going their own way and the MG Tau strategy, which I have an article coming out. Concerning your view on the military, I agree. However, the right and therefore whites consistently view the military government as a corrupt, evil, deep state, too depraved to save, and would rather choose to boogaloo than join. How, how can the right change the idea that government service can be beneficial? Is Trump partially to blame for this lack of belief in the established systems of power? I don't know if it's, it's completely wrong to have the right anti-government. It's more the fact that the solution to government is to move to the woods. I think that's more of the issue. I think there is kind of a thing where negative attitude the military has or a little bit more skeptical attitude the military has been better because there used to be a time where they just dress up a general send them out there and be like you need to embrace diversity or immigration or we need immigrants for our military and then the whole concern is like sir yes sir which i think now that there's a degree of skepticism that that's good and i think you do want it you do like that healthy sense of skepticism with government i think it's more just my main problem is just the solution to it which for these people, it's just like total retreat and disengagement and hoping that it sometimes all comes crumbling down on its own, which I think my solution is that actually you try to reform this, you try to get involved and that stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want I, I to criticize my um, I want to be clear that I'm not critical of the idea of being skeptical of the military or the government. I just more skeptical and critical of what our solution to that is, which is to use government and this, the tools we have to reform it and to make it better. So that is my answer to that question. I'm going to make sure I uh, get all these questions. We've got one from Bill. He says, we all know that pit bulls are completely unacceptable and dangerous dog breed for any respectable person owned. I want to know, I want to know the flip side. What are the Greer approved dog breeds? Uh, Deathly Retrievers, uh, German Shepherds. I think they're just kind of a big dogs that are, you know, friendly and, and good protectors. And there's a lot of dog breeds that can be like that. I think the only ones are like the type of pocket dogs that a lot of women like that are, you know, what's the point of it? It's like you can fit it in a purse like you should. I, I think most men will and will not try to get those dogs if they did. But there's just so many good, you know, beagles are friendly. They're great dogs. I would just say... Really, the pit bulls, chihuahuas, probably Rottweilers, unless you have a junkyard. <laughs> you know, those are actually Rottweilers. There's fewer Rottweilers, but they're actually, I think, considered more violent and dangerous than pit bulls. But the problem, the thing is, with people with Rottweilers, they only get them for guard duty. They only get them for that specific purpose. It's not like you know, uh, single, you know, a uh, single white mom decides to get a pit bull for her kids. You know, they're not getting that for Rottweilers. So I would say most of the dogs, um, most dogs would be Greer approved, but except for pit bulls and chihuahuas. 
Okay, and now we have, uh, it's John Chandler. This is different from the other John we get. I'm gonna use his, uh, it's a pseudonym so we can get it, uh, call him by the name. He said, Scott, what are your thoughts on the late British statesman Enoch Powell? No man is perfect, but it is sad that we do not really have any politicians of his caliber on either side of the Atlantic. Do you think there is anything that the dissident right can learn from Powell and other base stories like him in the UK? Absolutely no. Enoch Powell is awesome. You know, he was a classicist. You know, he's a academic who was actually pretty well respected uh, classical historian. I, I don't know if it was particularly history or philology that he was involved in, but his particular field, but he was a classicist and he was well regarded in that field. And then he turned to politics and he was one of the first in Britain to note that immigration was going to have devastating effects for the country and that they must stop it. And the conservative party came down hard on him, uh, even though he was totally right. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was interested in his ideas, but she didn't really implement it. And she kept him at arm's length. And he then later joined a unionist party, uh, Ulster Unionist Party, rather than uh, stick with the Tories. But no, he was great. I think he was uh, one of those, definitely those figures you can look to and learn a ton from and what his positions were on that. And he was like a mainstream figure, very distinguished, you know, not like some crank. And he was in the shadow cabinet of I'm trying to I, I I'm gonna get the guy's name wrong of the conservative shadow cabinet which when the labor party's in power there's a shadow cabinet in case uh, the Tories take in charge their position those people inherit those positions he got kicked out of the shadow cabinet uh when, due to his statements the rivers of blood speech but yeah no he is terrific great I can't say enough great things about him i would do an iq supplement on him to fully answer that question so i'll try to find a biography i'm sure there's tons of great biographies out there on him and do a whole thing on the political situation of the uk at that time and what it says but short answer big fan of enoch powell i think we can learn a lot from him so i think that is it for everyone except for new england refugee He's coming back this week. He he has a question this week. I'm pretty sure I got all of those questions. If uh, Once again, if I did some reason did not get your question, because sometimes it doesn't always come through in the inbox. You know, this is the nature of technology. Or if, you know, for some reason, you know, K-Max has sometimes had that before. Just send me another email and I'll get to it next week. And so my apologies in advance if I didn't get it. But New England Refugee asks... Thoughts on the tunneling New York Jews a few weeks back? Harmless meme material or something more? That's just It's just a really funny story. Because uh, this is just like the stupid shit that Hasidics are getting into. Um, from what I read, the story is like there's a major dispute within the synagogue between like a younger radical crowd of Hasidics and the older crowd. And there's and the rabbi over expanding the thing and then they just built these tunnels to try to expand it and it obviously they were not doing it in a correct way and they were relying on illegal immigrants to build it and then it was going to topple the whole structure and then the police had to come in and then they have all these like goofy people coming out of the, the sewers and stuff and it's just like what the fuck is this and then they toppled the whole structure anyway but they're always engaged in this ridiculous behavior there's a lot of welfare fraud within the Hasidic communities there are a lot of illegal alien labor in there as well. And so they're always doing ridiculous stuff. But, uh, you know, most of the Jewish Jewish community definitely frowns down on them. These aren't the guys, you know, 
running CNN or having, you know, being involved in Wall Street. Those guys really look down and see these guys as their equivalent to white trash. So a bit of harmless meme material, but that does show something that they're like all these communities have all this ridiculous stuff, a lot of illegal stuff going on. And so it does deserve more scrutiny from law enforcement and the public. But, you know, anytime that they try to do stuff, they're like, this is anti-Semitic and you can't do this and blah, blah, blah. So that would be my take on a short take on it. I know a lot of other people had other takes on it and were much more interested in it. But from what I gathered, it was just some really <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> dispute within that Hasidic congregation. So that is my thoughts on today, and that is it for Highly Respected this week. We're going to have more great content at Highly Respected's new URL, which is highly-respected.com. Make sure the dash is in there, because if you don't have the dash, as I said earlier, you will be going to an urban streetwear company, which I do not recommend you buying. It would be funny to have some of the, those clothing, though. Um, so that is it for our episode today. Going to have a great IQ supplement and a great article later this week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected. Yeah.